You could be seated. Well, ever since sin entered this world, as recorded in Genesis 3, life in this world has been hard. In Genesis 3 itself, while still in the garden, we see examples of guilt and shame, relational tension, and broken fellowship with God. Immediately after Genesis 3, we see murder, fratricide, Cain killing his brother. And as we've been studying Genesis, the first book of the Bible, these several months now, we've seen example after example of fear and worry and doubt and violence conniving, marital tensions, societal breakdowns, cataclysmic judgment, or even just what is so common in our day, achievement and advancement without any mention of God. But we also see glimmers of hope. In fact, way more than glimmers of hope. We see God on the move for the advancement of his blessing in the world. We've seen example after example in Genesis of God raising up one flawed family to be the conduit of blessing to the whole world. But those pockets of advancement and good and blessing are always against the backdrop of sin and struggle and trouble and complexity. God's plans for blessing and restoration are always related to people. They're always involving people. They run through people. They always land on people. Amazingly, people, sinful people, are the glad recipients of God's grace. But it is made abundantly clear again and again that God's promises and blessing and advancement to those people are not riding on those people, even the best people. God's purposes and promises are not because of people but because of God. In fact, sometimes God's purposes and promises are in spite of those people. The struggle is real. That's my title for this message. Now, I know how the kids use that phrase these days. The struggle is real. I've had teenagers, still have at least one or two. I can't remember. (laughs) But I know how kids use that phrase, the struggle is real. It's actually used these days to to suggest it isn't that real. Like you can't find the match to the sock, the struggle is real. Or someone's got a bad case of the Mondays, the struggle is real. 
Well, I mean the struggle is real in the literal sense, not in the hyperbolic sense like the kids use that phrase. The struggle's real. Our passage today, Genesis 25 and 26, show us this quite vividly. We'll see struggle and conflict, division, stolen blessing, famine, lying, and more tension and conflict. But we'll also see God continuing his faithfulness in the advancement of his promises in this world. We'll see God advancing his plan in the generation, generations, plural, beyond Abraham, in spite of these people's sins and stupidity and self-serving pursuits. In fact, we'll see an elevation of those promises of old first given to Abraham. We'll see God purposing and promising to be with his people in a way he hasn't yet spoken before. Well, that's chapter 26, though. That's getting a little bit ahead of ourselves. Let's start by reading the second half of chapter 25 of Genesis, and then we'll read on in chapter 26 a bit later on. Starting in verse 19 of verse 25, it says this, These are the generations of Isaac, Abraham's son. Abraham fathered Isaac, and Isaac was 40 years old when he took Rebekah, the daughter of Bethuel, the Aramean of Paddan Aram, the sister of Laban, the Aramean, to be his wife. And Isaac prayed to the Lord for his wife because she was barren. And the Lord granted his prayer, and Rebekah, his wife, conceived. The children struggled together within her, and she said, If it is thus, why is this happening to me? So she went to inquire of the Lord. The Lord said to her, Two nations are in your womb, and two peoples from within you shall be divided. The one shall be stronger than the other. The older shall serve the younger. When her days to give birth were completed, behold, there were twins in her womb. The first came out red, all his body like a hairy cloak. So they called his name Esau. Afterward, his brother came out in his hand holding Esau's heel. So his name was called Jacob. Isaac was 60 years old when she bore them. When the boys grew up, Esau was a skillful hunter, a man of the field, while Jacob was a quiet man, dwelling in tents. Isaac loved Esau because he ate of his game, but Rebekah loved Jacob. Once when Jacob was cooking stew, Esau came in from the field and he was exhausted. And Esau said to Jacob, Let me eat some of the red stew, for I am exhausted. Therefore his name was called Edom. Jacob said, sell me your birthright now. Esau said, I'm about to die. Of what use is a birthright to me? Jacob said, swear to me now. So he swore to him and sold his birthright to Jacob. Then Jacob gave Esau bread and lentil stew, and he ate and drank and rose and went his way. Thus Esau despised his birthright. Well, that much text will occupy a couple of headings in our outline. Some B words will help us keep track of things. The first is barrenness. God overcomes 
barrenness. We saw last week that God blessed Isaac, Abraham's son, with a wife, Rebecca. Rebecca was beautiful and industrious, and her arrival into Isaac's life was divinely orchestrated. But then Abraham died, and remember all those promises, the Abrahamic covenant, all those promises of salvation and blessing, redemption and restoration, those were all given to and would run through Abraham and his offspring. It's clear that Isaac is of that offspring, but what comes next? What will come of those promises? If there are promises of offspring and a multitude which no man can number, it's got to keep going, right? You're one generation away from those promises dying out if God doesn't provide another generation. And so our passage begins with one of those phrases that's familiar to the careful reader of Genesis. These are the generations of Ten times in the book of Genesis we find that phrase. These are the generations of. They are chapter headings or bookmarks, we could say. Back in chapter 11, verse 27, we read, These are the generations of Terah. And then what followed is the story of Terah's son, Abram, later called Abraham. And here it says, These are the generations of Isaac. And not too much time is given to Isaac, but to his son, Jacob. And then we'll get to chapter 37 eventually, where we'll read, these are the generations of Jacob. And then what follows is the stories of Jacob's 12 sons. So this should give us hope, even here. Chapter 25, verse 19, these are the generations of Isaac. We should anticipate offspring to come, but not so fast, because Rebecca is barren. It's a familiar problem in the Bible. Sarah, Isaac's mother, didn't become pregnant until 90 years old. And here, Isaac prays for his wife, verse 21. We don't know how long he prayed. We don't know how much he prayed. But he prayed, and God answered that prayer at least 20 years after he and Rebecca were first married. God, indeed, answers prayer. The encouragement and example that this couple is for every couple dealing with infertility should be obvious. They waited, they longed, they prayed, and God answered prayer. Now, he doesn't always answer prayer. I'll come to that in a second, but let's just sit on this for a little bit. This is an encouragement and an example for every couple who's dealing with infertility and longing for a son or daughter. You're not alone. This is all over the Bible. So pray. Take it to the Lord. Take it to the one who opens and closes wombs. He can do it. And this couple 
waited 20 years before there was any life in Rebecca's womb. And yet, we have to say, there is a uniqueness to this couple. This isn't like every couple. This is the line through which the promises of Abraham would be fulfilled. It has to have an offspring for the promises to be fulfilled. This couple's unique. And so while God answered Isaac's prayer in this instance, it's not a guarantee that God answers every one of our prayers and always gives us what we want. Not even children. And yet we also have to say that this is a familiar story in the Bible in that God tends to, at key times, open a womb for special purposes. I mean, it's not just Sarah's womb and not just Rebecca's womb. The same thing will happen with Jacob's wife, Rachel. The same thing happens with Samson's mother in Judges 13. The same thing happens with Hannah in her barren womb until 1 Samuel 2, when the Lord provides her a son, Samuel, the kingmaker. The same is said for Elizabeth, the mother of John the Baptist, who was barren until she wasn't. And Mary, the mother of Jesus. She wasn't barren per se, but she still had a miraculous birth. This is quite common in the Bible because God loves to do the seemingly impossible. He loves to show up when it looks like there's no hope. He works life from no life. It's symbolic and emblematic for how our God works. This is the kind of God we serve. The God who brings life out of nothing. Secondly, the second B, we see that God divides brothers. God divides brothers. Starting with the pregnancy inside Rebecca's womb. It's a tumultuous pregnancy. Verse 22, the twins struggled together within her. Literally in the Hebrew, they smashed together. And then Sarah, sorry, Rebecca inquires of the Lord, what's going on in my womb? This is no ordinary pregnancy. Perhaps she consulted an old, older woman. She inquired of the Lord, and the Lord said to her, verse 23, Two nations are in your womb, two peoples from within you shall be divided. There's conflict in the womb because there will be conflict outside the womb afterwards. And fast forward centuries and millennia, and this will explain geopolitical tensions. It also explains a spiritual reality that goes back to Genesis 3. The seed of the woman against the seed of the serpent. There will be conflict in this world. Two nations in your womb, divided. 
The older shall serve the younger, which doesn't follow the cultural conventions of the day. The firstborn was the one who got the inheritance, who was considered blessed among the others. But God flips that. And again, God often does that. We've seen that before, where God favored Abel's sacrifice over Cain's sacrifice. Or later in Genesis, God will choose Judah over his older brothers. Or later in the Old Testament, King David, of course, was the youngest and littlest of his big brothers, and God chose him. This is how our God works. He does what seems like it's upside down and backwards according to the cultural conventions of our day. This is how God saves. This is how God saved us if we're Christians. He saved us in the cross, which seems like foolishness, which is a stumbling block to the Jews, foolishness to the Greeks. Why would God save in this seemingly upside down, backwards way? Well, 1 Corinthians 1 tells us. It's how we're saved. Listen to this. Consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, the things that are not, to bring to nothing the things that are. Why? So that no human being might boast in the presence of God. In other words, God saves in such a way that no flesh, no human being gets the credit for it. That's how God saves. Now back to the birth and back to the delivery. There's an emblematic birth. Verse 25, one comes out hairy and red. And so they name him Esau, which means red. The other one, verse 26, came out with his hand clasped to Esau's heel. So they named him Jacob, which sounds like the Hebrew word for heel, implying he's a heel catcher, a heel grabber. Jacob, from birth, was a wrestler. And this is a wrestling move, and we'll find Jacob wrestling in the future, as we read on in Genesis. You see two different personalities in verse 27. One is a woodsman and a hunter, and the other one is quiet and an indoorsy type. You can imagine the tension just from that, let alone the divide in the parents' affections and allegiances. Verse 28. Dad likes the hunter. Mom likes the homebody. And the tensions, as the years advance, grow. They're stewing, we could say, and yes, pun intended. They're stewing, verse 29 and following. Let's read that again. Once when Jacob was cooking stew, Esau came in from the field and he was exhausted. Esau said to Jacob, let me eat some of the red stew, for I'm exhausted. 
Verse 31, Jacob said, sell me your birthright now. Esau said, I'm about to die, which he wasn't. <laughs> it's just a meal, right? I mean, he wasn't out for weeks and weeks. But he says, what use is a birthright to me? Jacob said, swear to me now. So he swore to him and sold his birthright. As Hebrews 12 told us, Esau sold his birthright for a single meal. Neither son, though, comes out looking good in this scenario. Jacob is a sneak, taking advantage of his hungry brother. And Esau can't see past his next meal, only thinks with his stomach. He foregoes what is most important especially in this family, he foregoes the inheritance of the Abrahamic covenant. This is how that promise, that prophecy, the younger, or rather the older shall serve the younger, this is how it actually comes about, humanly speaking. That doesn't make it right, doesn't make it right what Esau did, but God said this is the way it was going to be, and here is actually how it comes to pass. Because God is the one who foretold that it would come to pass, we see here that God is the one upon whom it depends. It was ultimately dependent on God. God is the one who made this division, this distinction between the two brothers. God made the distinction before either were born and before either had done good or bad. That's the language of Romans 9 as it comments on our passage. In Romans 9, Paul says this. When Rebekah had conceived children by one man, our forefather Isaac, though they were not yet born and had done nothing, either good or bad, in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls, she was told, the older will serve the younger. Verse 16 of Romans 9, so then it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. Our salvation is utterly, fully dependent on God. God's grace doesn't come to us through our human effort. It's not something we could possibly ever earn. It's not given to those who are good enough or smart enough. God's grace surely doesn't come through our striving our conniving, our manipulation, as if we could play God. God's grace doesn't come to us even through human conventions like firstborns and things like that. God's grace doesn't come to us even through human decision. Can you handle that? Can you handle that? Because the Bible insists it. We don't get it, not fully, 
But the Bible insists upon this. The Bible insists that if you have decided to receive the grace that comes to us in Jesus, it is because God has initiated that. God has made you willing. God has opened your blind eyes, awakened your dark, dead heart. If it was dependent upon us, none of us would seek him. Romans 3 says this, no man seeks after God. That's emphatic and universal. No one seeks after God. You say, well, it seems like I did. It was like a year and a half that I was trying to like wrestle with the Bible and come to terms with things. Yeah, I know. But if we can x-ray what happened, that was God working on you for you to seek him. He sought you that you would seek him. I mean, Jesus said this to his disciples in John 15. You didn't choose me, I chose you. Or John can say in 1 John, it's not that we first loved him, it's that he first loved us and gave himself for us. It's like this, according to John 1, to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God who were born born again, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. Or as Ephesians 1 puts it, he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us, destined us beforehand for the adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace. Well, the precedent for that, it goes back to our passage, to Jacob and Esau. Now, like Esau, if you don't believe, you can't blame God. That's your unbelief. He didn't make you not believe. We got that down just fine. And if you want to believe and be saved, then believe and be encouraged that he apparently is working in you to believe. You want to believe? Believe! That's a sign of God's initiating grace in you. And if you have believed and have been saved, then marvel at this. Stand in awe of God's sovereign grace initiated in eternity's past. It's grace from top to bottom, from beginning to end. Is it possible that God's grace is more necessary and more pervasive and more involved and more to his glory than you have previously thought? It is possible. The Bible insists that it is. And that's humbling to us. But it's glorifying to God. The Puritans used to say that that's a good test for doctrine. How do we know that something's true? Well, 
if God gets more glory and we get less glory, that's probably true. I'd encourage you to study that more if that rocks your world and blows your mind and ruffles your feathers. I remember in college first hearing about this, that God initiates salvation, that God chooses who he will set his saving love upon. I remember wrestling with it. I remember thinking, there's no way that's true. And, and then a friend called me up who was also wrestling with these things, and, and he said, get over here and bring your Bible. I just read Romans 9. We're done we're done. I, that was it. We just turned in our cards. The game's over, man. He's God. Study it. Accept it. And then cherish it. Cherish it. Well, we may have to move on. Thirdly, God ensures blessing. That's what chapter 26 is all about. And Don't get nervous. I know how much text we have in front of us. Chapter 26, let me just give you an overview, is about God's blessing to Isaac and the blessing that comes through Isaac despite some challenges within and without. It's about God's blessing. The details of the Abrahamic covenant that have been previously relayed to Abraham in chapter 12 and 15 and 17 and 18 and others that there would be a great many people that comes from Abraham, that those people would become a nation or even nations plural, that they would have a place, a land, that they would be blessed and that they would be a blessing uh, to the nations. Well, those things are now passed down. And twice in our passage of Genesis 26, God appears to Isaac, and repeats those same promises of the Abrahamic covenant to Isaac. It's in verses 2 to 5, and then again in verse 24. But there's also this new added feature that hasn't been promised before in the Abrahamic covenant package. It's this. I will be with you. Three times. Verse 3. I will be with you. Then verse 24, fear not, for I am with you, present tense. And then God puts it on the lips of a foreign king, Abimelech. Verse 28, Abimelech and his men say, we see plainly that the Lord has been with you. Future, past, present, the Lord is with him. That's the lay of the land for Genesis chapter 26. Now let's get into some details. Let's read the first five verses. Now there was a famine in the land, besides the former famine that was in the days of Abraham. And Isaac went to Gerar, to Abimelech, king of the Philistines. And the Lord appeared to him and said, Do not go down to Egypt. Dwell in the land of which I shall tell you. Sojourn in this land, and I will be with you, and I will bless you. 
For to you and to your offspring I will give all these lands and I will establish the oath that I swore to Abraham your father. I will multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven and I will give to your offspring all these lands and in your offspring all the nations of the earth shall be blessed because Abraham obeyed my voice and kept my charge, my commandments, my statutes, and my laws." I have three subheadings under this third point that God ensures blessing. God ensures blessing in the face of starvation, in the face of famine and potential starvation. This sounds familiar to us, doesn't it? In fact, it's there in verse 1 of chapter 26, just the hint This was before the former famine in the days of Abraham. That was in Genesis 12. In Genesis 12, Abraham too faced a famine. And he went down to Egypt so that that there'd be food. And that didn't go well for him. And while it seems reasonable, even wise, to go where there is food when you're at a place, where you're at a place where there is no food, Here, in Genesis 26, God had Isaac stay in a land of famine because God was able to provide for him there. God wasn't limited by food supply. And he needed Isaac to trust him despite the circumstances. And so again, the Abrahamic promises are reiterated to Isaac and passed down to him with this added thing, I'll be with you. The God who is able to bless you and give you lands and give you offspring like the stars, and in your offspring, nations will be blessed, all the nations be blessed. The God who's able to do all that is able to sustain you in a famine. So you don't need to go down to Egypt. You don't need to trust In Egypt, trust in God. I'll be with you. Let me just unpack that phrase, I'll be with you, because it's such a massive theme in the whole Bible. Realize that it's personal. This God doesn't just say, I'll do good to you and through you. God says, I'll be with you. That's personal, it's intimate, it's ultimate, it's what we need. It's really reversing the fall and the consequences of the fall. Remember, at the fall, in the garden, God sent them out, Adam and Eve, away from his presence. Fellowship was broken. And now, God is promising to be with his people. A theme that is, throughout the rest of the Bible, just sort of grows and swells. You think of the days of the wilderness, wanderings, and exodus. Yes, they were in the wilderness, and yes, they were wandering, but God was with them. They could see the pillar of fire and know that God was with them. They could could pitch the tent of the tabernacle and see the presence of God come down and enter in. God was with them. You think of how important the temple was in those later Old Testament days. God dwelt in the midst of his people permanently, not with a tent, but with a building until the fulfillment of that temple came. Jesus, who is named Emmanuel, God 
with us. John 1:14, he dwelt among us and we beheld his glory. You think of though Jesus left us on this side of the resurrection and ascension, he's left us his Holy Spirit who indwells us. You think of the Great Commission where Jesus gave his final words to his disciples, go into all the world to make disciples, and I will be with you even to the end of the age. You think of what it means when he comes back. He comes back for us. He comes back to bring us with him. He prayed in John 17, Father, I desire that they may be with me to see my glory. This is what a new heaven and new earth will be all about. We will dwell with him. Revelation says it is the dwelling place of God with man. That's what heaven will be. And so it's a sure promise. It's sure. It's sure here. It's sure for Isaac. When it comes from God, it is sure. I will be with you. Bon Jovi saying, I'll be there for you. These five words I swear to you. But they haven't always been there for us, have they? They haven't put out a good album in decades. <laughs> God will be with us. And if it's God with us, then it's God for us. I mean, if I said to my wife as she goes through something difficult, I'm with you. That just means my physical presence is nearby and I'm here for you and I have sympathy and empathy and that's about all I can do probably. But God says I'll be with you and he means I'll be for you. I will work for you. Nothing can separate us from his love. Well, let's read on a bit. We won't read all of chapter 26 this morning, but let's read Verses 6 to 16. It says, So Isaac settled in Gerar when the, man, uh, when the men of the place asked him about his wife. He said, She is my sister. For he feared to say, My wife, thinking, lest the men of the place should kill me because of Rebekah, because she was attractive in appearance. When he had been there a long time, Abimelech, king of the Philistines, looked out of a window and saw Isaac laughing with Rebekah, his wife. So Abimelech called Isaac and said, Behold, she is your wife. How then could you say she's my sister? Isaac said to him, Because I thought, lest I die because of her. Abimelech said, What is this you've done to us? One of the people might easily have lain with your wife, and you would have brought guilt upon us. So Abimelech warned all the people, saying, Whoever touches this man or his wife shall surely be put to death. And Isaac sowed in that land and reaped in the same year a hundredfold. The Lord blessed him. And the man became rich and gained more and more until he became very wealthy. He had possessions of flocks and herds and many servants, so that the Philistines envied him. We can stop there. God ensures blessing in the face of stupidity. That's one word for all that's going on here with Isaac. 
I think I heard some gasps as we read it because it's so shocking to see it now for the third time. Twice with Father Abraham, Genesis 12 and Genesis 20, and now again with his son Isaac. They lied saying that their wife was their sister, risking her sexual purity simply for his physical protection. Genesis 26 is the sister lie 3.0. And we might roll our eyes at that, but it teaches us a few things. It reminds us that God's promises and progress are really not dependent on these people. It shows us vividly that sin is just this stubborn, this stupid, this silly. It challenges us. Are our sins really less predictable than that? Are our sins really less recurring than that? As if we only have like a buckshot of variety of sins and no ruts? You kidding? It shows us that the sins of the parents often become the sins of the children. That doesn't always have to be the case. But often it is. Isaac wasn't alive during Abraham's similar disgraceful lies, but he's caught the same bug. Perhaps it's more of the fear that's behind the lie that has influenced him from his father. You see that? Just like, just like Abraham lied because he feared. So verse 6 makes that explicit. It's because of fear. Not trusting God. Not believing that God was with him. Believing that God was able to provide in the midst of a famine, but not believing that God was able to protect him when he's in a foreign land with a pretty wife. That's just silly. God was with him. In fact, God was faithful through it all, even in the midst of all this sinful shenanigans. Even in getting caught. Abimelech, by the way, probably a second Abimelech, might be a title. Abimelech sees Isaac and Rebekah laughing, verse 8, and he surmises they're not brothers and sisters. So laughing here is probably a euphemism. They're probably doing something more than laughing. Something more romantic, something more physical. The Bible is honest, but often it is discreet like this. It calls fooling around laughing sometimes. It's fitting because Isaac's name means laughter. So there's the confrontation, verses 9 and 10. And then you've got this amazing outcome, verses 12 and following. This blessing of herds and servants and flocks, possessions, wealth. This in the midst of famine. This, this in the midst of all his foolishness. It's just crazy. God is that generous. That gracious, that kind. Now, God's approval isn't always proven 
with prosperity. In fact, in the New Testament, it's often adversity that marks God's faithful people. But in this context, Isaac's swelling wealth and prosperity is, in this context, it's a mark of God's hand upon him. And this in spite of his disobedience and foolishness. Thirdly, is a sub-point under our third main point. God ensures blessing in the face of strife. In the face of strife. And really we can include verses 17 and following. And let me just summarize verses 17 and following for you. You can read it later on your own. There are all kinds of quarrels about wells, wells like where water comes from. All kinds of quarrels with the Philistines over wells. In the midst of it, God reiterates his promises and his presence with Isaac once again. And then there's this inexplicable outcome in verses 26 in following where this conflict with the Philistines over the wells is resolved and there's peace and a fresh covenant, a pact is made between them. And they acknowledge God's presence with Isaac, verse 28. We see plainly now that God is with you. It was promised to Abraham and his offspring long ago, in you all the nations will be blessed. Abraham was told, I will bless those who bless you. And we're seeing that right here in our passage. They can see that God is with this man and his people. But it doesn't end on that happy note. It circles back to where our passage began with Jacob and Esau. Remember the conflict between them? Well, look on, verse 34. When Esau was 40 years old, he took Judith, the daughter of Bireh, the Hittite, to be his wife, and Basemath, the daughter of Elan, the Hittite, and they made life bitter for Isaac and Rebekah. Now this makes clear that Esau was not just the less fortunate brother, that it wasn't just merely sibling rivalry going on here. Esau cast his lot with the other side. He married outside the covenant. He married Hittites, two of them. And they, plural, they, made life bitter for Isaac and Rebekah. Two nations are in your womb, Rebekah, and they are divided. Just as God graciously resolves some conflict like that with the Philistines, so other conflicts rage on like Esau and the Edomites to come. Again, that conflict is as old as Genesis 3, the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent. That conflict and the hope of Genesis 3.15 runs through our passage and eventually through the cross of Jesus Christ. He was crucified. That is both conflict and it is our salvation. So from one angle we can say, In light of the cross, the battle has been won. That cosmic conflict is what led to Jesus being strung up and crucified, but he didn't 
merely die, he was also raised. That's what we celebrate in this coming Easter season. At the cross, Jesus took on the struggle, the conflict, the cosmic conflict, and fixed it. And now we rest in him. In that sense, the battle has been won. From another angle, even for Christians, the battle is not done. It goes on. Conflict remains. This explains Christian persecution. This explains spiritual warfare. As we'll sing in just a minute, a mighty fortress is our God. Though this world with devils filled should threaten to undo us, we will not fear, for God has willed his truth to triumph through us. The prince of darkness, grim, we tremble not for him. His rage we can endure, for lo, his doom is sure. One little word shall fell him. God's promises are sure. God's promises are sure despite our sin, despite the strife in this world. He has blessed us in Jesus. He will be with us. He is with us. He has been with us. He is with us in worship. He is with us, with us in the mission of spreading his glory in the world. And in the end, he will be with us fully as he unites himself to us in a new heaven, in a new earth. And in that day, there will be no more struggle. Let's pray. Oh, Lord, we thank you that you have won the battle. You are our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. We thank you, Lord, for your presence with us. And we pray, Lord, that that would be, well, a warm and inviting message to those here who haven't yet come under this welcome. Perhaps today, Lord, they would know your presence, presence to do them good, presence shown to us in Jesus, presence that will be sure forever and realized one day in heaven. Oh, we thank you for all this. Lord, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.